This is the Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors podcast sponsored by Visit Bemidji. Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors covers the lakes, woods, trails, wildlife, and anything else going on outdoors in Paul Bunyan's playground. Well, today on Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors, uh, we're meeting for the first time Scott Mockentune. He's an area fishery supervisor out of the Hutchinson office, probably better known up here for a number of the uh, articles he's written. He's uh, he's a freelance writer. He works for, writes for Mankato and St. Cloud Times as well. Scott, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Kevin. It's great to uh, great to be on. Uh, you know, get through uh, the Brainerd Lakes area every once in a while. I'm able to tune in and have lots of friends, so it's, uh, it's, a, it's a known product. It's fun to, fun to join you today. Glad to have you on, and I'm glad people have heard of it. That's always good. <laughs> <laughs> So Scott, I, I you know uh, has seen your name out there on uh, a lot of the outdoor sites for a while, but I uh, paid pretty close attention when uh, you did the article on Jason Rylander, one of the regulars on on this show. Uh, how did you meet Jason? First of all, well, Jason and I go back uh, through both of us being representatives for Clam Outdoors, uh, good old Minnesota Ice Fishing Company. And, uh, you know, him working with, uh, North Country Guide Service and getting out and out and about and traveling around. We had a lot in common. He's got a great sense of humor, which I, uh, appreciate. So, uh, it was kind of fun this year. Uh, I was up to Itasca State Park with my family and said, Hey, can you, can you duck away for a morning of a little bit of fishing while the kids sleep in? And we got together and talked smart and wetted a line. So it's always fun to, <laughs> To visit with different people and to fish up there, and, and uh, he lets me check both boxes. Well, you uh, obviously are into the outdoors, and uh, I'm guessing most of the guys I know who work in the DNR or, or are fishing guides or whatever they are in the outdoors, something that's been around in their DNA for a long, long time. I'm, I'm guessing you pretty much grew up that way. Yeah, my background, I was a farm kid, which you know I'm, I'm seeing less and less folks that have that, that rural background, and I'm joining that demographic mm-hmm. of folks that no longer have that background at least my kids won't um you know shrinking shrinking number of farms but larger farm size and that that fits the model for for our farm my cousin is continuing to farm um but my interests were were always in the outdoors from a pretty early age i would uh jump on the bike and uh run down to lake marion on highway 15 uh south of hutchinson and kind of north of uh north of brownton and that's where I cut my teeth doing a lot of fishing. Uh, you know, had grandparents that did a lot of fishing. My family, uh, did just a little bit, you know, when we could get off the farm and, uh, did, didn't do any hunting. So the hunting was kind of an adult onset thing. And pretty young, um, through, through a 4 H project, I interviewed Chris Kavanaugh. He's, he's now retired. Uh, he was, uh, an area, uh, fishery supervisor in Hutchinson for a couple of years before he went up to Grand Rapids and mm-hmm. spent the rest of his career up there. And boy, after interviewing Chris, I was like, yeah, this is a really cool job. I would love to do this someday. And, uh, kind of put, set my sights on that, uh, career trajectory and got all the education and training that I needed. And was lucky enough to, to be one of those folks, uh, working for, for DNR and working in fisheries. And like you said, Kev, you know, there's, there's a lot of us that are in this profession that, that, that love the outdoors. I think about the folks that are, uh, in the radio range there and, and all the, all the personnel and they are very active in the outdoors. They love to hunt, fish, trap and, uh, and, and they, they've built a career around it. And 
you know, that it's a, it's a priority to them. And just like for them, it's the same situation with me. It really dovetails with your personal interests. You, you kind of have one foot in each camp. And, um, you know, I, you know, can only speak for myself, but I try to keep, uh, keep clear of any conflicts of interest, but most of the time it's pretty simple. Um, you know, report on the outdoors for the, for the moonlight freelance job and, and, and outdoor writing job and, you know, stick to the, the fish management topics and, uh, yeah, it's been it's been fun to do a little bit of both. So, how did you get into writing? Well, my you, you gotta you gotta love your parents, right? They're good sets of parents. They may not share the same uh, interests as you, but they always support you in the things that you do. And uh, my parents were always behind me in everything that I did, uh, whether it was you know going to school for this career path or, or choosing a school or extracurricular interests, whatever it, it might have been. And that's the case for my writing career as well. My my mother wrote me when I was a senior in college. I attended the University of Minnesota in the Twin Cities, and she let me know that our local newspaper, the, the Hutchinson Leader, uh, was putting it out there that they were looking for uh, for a columnist. And I started submitting some work to them. They liked it. They ran with it. After a handful of months, they offered me the job. And I became a regular columnist there, um, found some other openings at, at the newspapers you mentioned earlier, and uh, just kind of kept that kept that going. I've I've had a chance to to write for a few different newspapers, to do some freelancing, and it's it's always just at the level that that keeps me satisfied. I pick up a little bit more here and there, but I don't ever want to get too heavy into it because you want to put in just as much time in the outdoors as writing about the outdoors, and then of course raising a young family. So it's it's like everything. Uh, variety is the spice of life, and I try to fill it up with a little bit of everything. Maybe it's, you know, Paul Bunyan country snobbery uh, up here, but, I, you know, I don't think of Hutchinson as an area where there's a lot of fishing going on, but obviously and uh, there's enough going on that, that there's a fisheries manager down there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's there certainly is that north-south distinction, and, you know, being a southern Minnesota kid, that was you know, it was always the dream was, you know, you go up north, everybody's got up north uh, in mind. And, and, you know, there's always going to be that Minnesota, Minnesotan debate about where the line delineates the two. But yeah, I used to do a lot of vacations to the north part of the state. And, but, but yeah, growing up around, uh, around that area, you know, you started to learn the resources and we we do have some, we do have some unique Versus, I mean, there's definitely a, a difference. Um, there are lake-rich regions. One of the former stations I worked at was Waterville, which is just east of Mankato. And I, I live in Lesueur County, which is one of the counties that's uh, served by the Waterville station. And the, that part of the state refers to the to themselves as kind of lake country. I can think of several spots on the map in Minnesota that consider themselves to be lake country. Mm-hmm. Um, and, none, and none of them are wrong. Uh, Meeker <laughs> County is that way, too. If you go to the Meeker County uh, website, their kind of logo has a has a northern pike. Um, we've got a a brewery in Hutchinson, the Bobbing Bobber Brewing Company, that's really got a lot of fishing themes to it. Some of the small towns that I worked at, um, southern Minnesota, there's there's tons of fish festivals. Waterville had bullhead days. Madison Lake had paddlefish days. Um, uh, we have a water festival in Hutchinson. It's located along the South Fork of the Crow River. So a lot of a lot of resources down there. I think our big one that that uh, a lot of folks down here hang their hat on, and myself included, is I spend my summers on the Minnesota River. And at the Hutchinson office, uh, there's been a long history of working on the Minnesota River. We have a full 
time um, biologist there that, that works on the river. So we're pretty proud of the Minnesota. Even if it doesn't get a lot of attention, it still is a pretty impressive fishery for a number of different fish species. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, up here, not a lot of river fishing. You know, a little bit of trout streams. You get down to about Brainerd, and then then the the Mississippi gets to be a real thing, you know, as far as fishing goes. But there's not a lot of significant river fishing unless you go to Grand Forks or to East Grand Forks and hop on the red and, and do cat fishing. So tell us about the Minnesota. Yeah, it's uh, what is it, 126 miles or something like that. It's a long stretch. I always equate it to um, belt that stretches across the midsection of the state or the southern section of the state. It uh, you know begins out around Big Stone area and and uh, cuts down to to Mankato before it curves back to the north and heads up to to Minneapolis St Paul and and uh, of course is a tributary to the Mississippi mm-hmm. and you know along the, along its stretch there's there's really great fishing for uh, walleyes and saugers for white bass you can pick up shovelnose sturgeon uh, the state. And the Department of Natural Resources, with participation from South Dakota and some uh, tribal members, are working on restoring lake sturgeon, and, and that's already bearing fruit in places. Uh, lake sturgeon are starting to get caught more frequently. And uh, I would say the big, the big, uh, the kind of the big attraction, at least for me, is is the is the catfishing. It's channel catfish and flathead catfish, and we only have flathead catfish. In three in the three major rivers uh, in Minnesota, and that's uh, the Mississippi, uh, the Minnesota, and the Saint Croix, and, and the 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 extent of the flathead is is up to to Saint Anthony Falls. It, it you really it's a natural barrier, so um, they're they're not too much further up than that, and so it's it's a unique opportunity. And I think we used to see a lot of people traveling uh, to. At it. And, and now it's it's even something of a mainstream thing. I'm seeing more people that are doing it. There's fishing guides that are taking folks out. There's lots of fishing leagues, and that that was that was the attraction for me as I moved into New Prague, um, coming out of college and, and starting work. My wife and I settling down. You kind of want to do the thing that's in your backyard. And uh, pretty early on, I joined a, a catfish league here, the Bell Plain Catfish League. Fished out of that, fished uh, a friend of mine that organized a statewide contest called the King of the Cats, fished that, and now I, I don't have as much time with kids around to, to make it out. I think before kids, I used to fish catfish in the summers three, four nights a week, um, and now I'm lucky to get my one night a week or you know every two weeks even sometimes. So um, that that is the draw for me is to get out and, and catch a fish that a lot of folks in the state don't get a, get a chance to get after, and Really, the size of those flatheads is very impressive as well. Um, those are fish that, you know, a small fish is in the five to ten pound range. A, a medium sized fish is probably fifteen to twenty, and a large fish is thirty pounds and up. And I mean, for a lot of folks, they'd be tickled pink to catch a, a five pound fish anywhere, and that that's a small fish for a flathead. <laughs> Yeah, that's we don't like you said we don't see that much here. Uh, Red River, we get channel channel cats, I should say, and uh, um, there is some sturgeon stuff going on, of course, up on Rainy Lake and well, mainly Rainy River and uh, Lake of the Woods. So it's good to to hear some of these things uh, starting to develop around the state. I know you know the DNR and and organizations that help the DNR have been working hard to make some of this stuff happen, and we're starting to see some fruit. 
Yeah, the, the sturgeon recovery story is, is pretty amazing, but it's not one you can just hold your breath on. I mean, you're talking about a, an animal that can live up to beyond 100 years and can take 20 to 25 years to reach sexual maturity. So it's a easy to wipe out and it takes time to recover it. But you know, I'm, I'm very pleased and proud of the folks that came before me that started working on restoring these these fish and stocking them and you know those efforts are continuing today and you know by the time i'm at retirement age then you know the, the there's there should be recovered populations in a lot more places and uh, we should be making a lot more progress so it's it's exciting to see that and i'm certainly going to welcome those fishing opportunities when they come as well well um you know, like I said, it's a, it's a little bit different area. One of the things you talked about is you you had a panfish review, so I'm assuming you got plenty of good little panfish lakes down there. And you mentioned you were on the uh, the catfish technical committee. So, um, what are some of the things, first of all, that you're doing with the uh, with the catfish technical committee these days? Sure, our 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 catfish technical committee and any any of the state's DNR species specific technical committees they interface with a an angler work group. And folks that want, that are interested in, in serving on those angler work groups, you know, certainly reach out to your local offices, um, make that, make that interest be known. Um, it used to really get advertised and put out a lot more with, with annual, um, applications. And that's kind of slowed down just because of workload that we, we don't have as many people to go through that review process. Um, trying to get a few folks in here and there when we know of interest. But I feel like that's a good fit, um, you know, for representation for our state's anglers from from a from a variety of interests. You know, folks that that love the trophy fish, or maybe they're they're food fish anglers, and you know, all all the different demographic representation, men and women, um, you know, uh, out state and in state, uh, uh, all over, just whatever representation we can get to make sure that we are representing the same diversity that occurs across our whole angling populace, but. Those two groups work together well. Uh, you, you hear from the work group members what their concerns are or their questions are about the resource. In the case of our Catfish Technical Committee, um, our group has been around for about a decade now, and catfish anglers early on didn't have a lot of great representation. They had concerns about baits. We have a lot of aquatic invasive species laws, uh, some of which you know, are very prohibitive, and uh, there were questions about, well, can you use bait that you catch right on the water um, if you're not going to take it off the water? So, you know, those came from catfish anglers. Catfish anglers and sturgeon anglers have been interested in the opportunity to use uh, two lines. Um, that's been something that we've kind of gone back and forth on, and, um, you know, we'll see what happens in the future with that topic. Um, bait's been a, as I mentioned earlier, that's been a big, a big thing. It used to be really restrictive on the size of bullheads that you could use. And, and bullheads are kind of the, the, the going away most popular, um, bait for flathead catfish because they're easy to capture, keep alive. Um, they're a great bait choice. So that's been something that, that was changed as well. There used to be a, a very small size limit on, on bait and we need to have larger, uh, sizes for for folks that want to toss a bullhead out there. Um, you know, beyond that, it's just been questions from our work group about you know what you guys are working on and what you're learning. And there's there's been a lot of a lot of a lot of growth and learning. Uh, we've got really talented people around the state. Uh, Joel Styrus, I, I can't I won't name everyone that's on our committee, but I know j- just some of the field work. I'll mention some of that. Joel Styrus is a specialist in the metro area that's 
done some work on uh, tagging a variety of fish species with uh, acoustic tags and, and seeing when they go through locks and dams and along different receivers up and down the Minnesota, Mississippi, and St. Croix River. That's also being done by our Minnesota River biologist, Tony Sint. Um, Tony's done a, a lot of work on hoop netting flatheads, trying to get an idea of how abundant they are, um, how many fish per river mile there are, building on some of the work that one of our researchers in Waterville, Steve Troyer, did. Um, we've got Nick Clute, who's working in the Red River. They're doing amazing work out there on just rehabilitation, reestablishment of the Red River and all the tributaries, so uh, dam removals and watershed projects and Again, seeing how that fish community is responding, and in many ways very successfully, um, adding new species and, and seeing those fish uh, uh, proliferate. Uh, it, so it's been it's been a lot of field work. It's been a lot of kind of documentation of, of what we're doing for catfish resources, and and that's just sort of a little a little bit of a snippet. Um, but yeah, every 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 work group is is very active, and you know that's probably a good segue to talking about panfish Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely um and and i know you're not on the technical committee but you uh you are making some recommendations for some some lakes in your area yeah that's that's correct so um i i know it's been talked about before on on paul bunyan country but to review for folks out there for a long time uh we have seen as as dnr fisheries employees we have seen these uh reviews that come back they're human dimension surveys uh, folks go out and buy a fishing license and then we contract with the university of minnesota they will send out a survey to a subset of the license buying public looking for feedback on uh, their their uh, opinions and attitudes and kind of expectations of of fishing you know what do you go fishing for how satisfied are you with your fishing? Do you use live bait? Do you use artificials? What do you target? There's there's bunches and bunches of questions. You know, it's a pretty survey. I want to say it's a couple hundred questions. But we get these results back that give us an idea of where our clientele sits, so to speak. One of the things that has been repeatedly observed since about the mid-1980s with respect to panfish and specifically sunfish is that our anglers are quite satisfied with the numbers of sunfish they're catching, but they're dissatisfied with the size of the fish that they're catching. So we know from the angling public is not satisfied. They're not happy with smaller size fish. Biologically, looking through our catch data, we've been on a kind of a long-term, something of a long-term decline depending on the lake. But, you know, amassing all the lakes together, you could probably observe it. You can take the survey data. Um, in some cases, by the time standardized survey started, the, the fish were probably already impacted. You were already seeing smaller-sized fish. So th- this quality sunfish initiative is the idea that, um, and it's been used before, basically there are some lakes across Minnesota right around 60 that have had reduced bag limits. And the goal has been to curtail harvest, to cut back on fish harvest, and then see uh, a response with with growth. Basically, uh, you're, you're leaving more large fish in the system and giving those fish more time to, to get larger. It's, it's, it's really that simple. When we think about bluegills, for example, you know, that's a fish that to get to 10 inches is probably going to take 10 years. That can vary from lake to lake, but just talking in generalities, 10 years to get to that size. 
I mean, correspondingly, if you're a whitetail deer hunter, if you want to get a, a, a buck to trophy size, you only need to do it in about two and a half, three and a half, four and a half years. It doesn't take that long. So uh, that's kind of an eye-opening thing for a lot of people to realize that you have to give these fish time. And we're we're talking about an animal that doesn't grow as large, you know, comparatively. And you think about muskies getting to 40, 50 inches or, or northern pike getting to 30 or 40 inches. You know, it takes time to get to that point, and they have a bigger scale to grow across. Those panfish, every inch and a half inch is, is, is important and counts, and every additional year of life counts. So the idea here is can you find some lakes across the state of Minnesota that are good candidates for additional protection, that have a history of producing large-sized fish, either through your catch records, um, you know, from sampling with, with, with trap nets or gill nets, or you know, information from, from guides or from resorts on the lake that, that document, you know, past history of producing these large fish. And looking around throughout the state, going with this quality sunfish initiative, it really kicked off in 2019, starting to talk about this. There was information that was produced about it. I know uh, in the Brainerd Lakes area, Angling Buzz did some, some coverage on it, talked about it quite a bit. Uh, some of the fishing professionals and celebrities were talking about it. And that gave folks a little bit of time to learn some more. We put out some news releases. We put out some information. Last year was the first round of lakes, roughly 100 lakes that were proposed, went through a public input process. Now we're on to the second year and the second uh, kind of round of, of proposals. And for Hutchinson area where I work, we have two lakes that we are proposing, uh, Ripley and Minabel. These are two lakes that are in the Litchfield area in Meeker County. Um, they do have histories of producing large fish. I've, I've fished on both of them in the past and, and caught large sunfish. Um, had some interesting um, conversations with people that used to fish it a long time ago. We'll catch large fish. We know at different times there can be high harvest in the spring or, or in the winter during the spawn, but really throughout the year. Uh, so the idea would be if, if approved, um, we would we would go through a, a bag limit reduction from the 20 that it's at right now per day down to five. So harvest would would be backed off quite a bit. He's Scott Mockintoon, outdoor writer and the Hutchinson Area Fisheries Supervisor. Got a lot more with Scott to come next on the Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors podcast. Hi, this is Dick Beardsley with Dick Beardsley Fishing Guide Service. Are you looking to plan a fishing trip? Look no further as Bemidji, Minnesota is your year-round destination for walleyes, pike, muskie, bass, perch, crappie, panfish, and more. With over 400 fishing lakes within a 25-mile radius of Bemidji, come take a cast of becoming a fishing legend. While you're on your fishing adventure, come take a picture with the historic Paul Bunyan and Babe the Blue Ox. Discover the first city on the Mississippi... Bemidji, one step further. This is the Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors podcast. Scott Mockington, my guest. One thing I like about Minnesota anglers, they're pretty smart. They're very, very passionate. They care deeply, and uh, and they will do what it takes to keep the fishing strong. You know, that's a, that's a good point. One, one thing that stuck out to me, I had a chance to attend... Uh, attend the round table a few years ago we have fish and wildlife dna round round table and ron shera was there needs no introduction you know ron ron talked about i never thought the day would come 
that I would see Minnesotans release walleyes. There was no way you were going to see people release walleyes. And now I see people voluntarily releasing walleyes at small sizes or in protected slot limits. And he said that was his green light moment that he realized that people would be willing to give something up. And that's kind of what we're asking folks to do. We know that sunfish and bluegills are people's bread and butter fish. I and most of the listeners have had lots and lots of wonderful fish fries with sunfish. We're not asking people to stop doing that. We still want you to have harvest opportunities. Go out and have those you know, delicious fish fries with your family, catching sunfish. Um, it, we, we, just, we do have some lakes that have this potential to grow these big fish. Let's try to take care of a few of those lakes. Let's provide those opportunities. And then you get a little bit of the best of both worlds. You have some places that you can go and uh, get meals full of, of, of fish. And you have other places you can go. You can still harvest if you want, but you'll have that opportunity to catch a little larger size fish, something that largely has been lost in Minnesota in many places. Yeah. Well, let's uh, talk personally. You were, t- you were mentioning you, you just went out of state for some fishing and hunting. Uh, where were you at and what was, uh, what was going on? Well, yeah, I took a week off last week, uh, went out to Wyoming my first time uh, on a pronghorn hunt, pronghorn antelope. Uh, I did go with a friend of mine. He was able to fill his tag on the first day. Um, <laughs> we we hunted around, and it, it was a unit that didn't take a lot of uh, preference points to draw, and there was a reason for that. There wasn't uh, a ton of access to public land, and there was a lot of hunters, so it was very competitive. Um, I did have a chance to see one uh, one antelope in my in my rifle scope uh, just as I picked her up and uh, had what appeared to be a clear shot. She uh, she managed to get behind uh, some sagebrush, so I did not uh, did not succeed with that one. Did not pull the trigger. But uh, while I was out in Wyoming, I did have a chance to. Uh, it was it was about eighty degrees, which is a contrast to this week. I understand that. Rapid City, where we drove through, has got a, got a couple inches of snow here this just a day or two ago. Um, but while I was out there and it was so sweltering hot, uh, we took a day off, went into the Bighorn Mountains, uh, Cloud Peak Wilderness. We hiked about eight miles back in and and fished a couple lakes that the state of Wyoming is stocking with different fish species. There's uh, a cutthroat lake. There's a couple uh, uh, lakes that have splake and arctic grayling, and that was the draw for me. Um, Arctic grayling normally aren't in the lower 48. They used to be native to Michigan, but they were wiped out there. Nowadays, if you want to catch an Arctic grayling, you typically have to go to Alaska. And uh, I was able to, to hike into the big horns to their non-native range. They are introduced. Uh, do some fishing for, for Arctic grayling. And they are just a gorgeous fish if, if you're ever able to take a look at one. They're a silvery fish that has these, has this really unique large dorsal fin that sticks up and they have these beautiful, uh, iridescent blue teal spots on them, uh, against kind of a dark background. So just a really gorgeous fish, something unique to do. Um, that was probably the highlight of my trip since I came home with an unfilled antelope pig. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, on, and then on the back side of that trip, I had to kind of hustle home a couple months ago. My, my uncle passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, he was a, uh, policymaker for, uh, the U S government department of commerce and then later the national oceanographic and, Admit- and atmospheric administration, uh, working on, uh, f- on fisheries policy and specifically marine mammal policy. So they did, uh, 
these international uh, treaties and agreements on on whaling, uh, working with a lot of other countries on whaling. So we did have that uh, work in in fisheries and fisheries management, albeit different species and and different uh, geographic scales. Uh, we did have that in common a little bit, but. He passed away, and we were out for the funeral. And while I was out in Maryland, I I snuck away one of the mornings to uh, to do some snakehead fishing. Uh, the Potomac River in and around the nation's capital, Maryland, D.C., Virginia, uh, that area, there are quite a few of these northern snakehead. Um, they have escaped uh, from captivity. They look very similar to bowfin, although they're a completely different fish, different family. Uh, and they are amazing table fare and uh, quite a rush while fishing. <laughs> Unfortunately, I only had about two and a half hours of fishing time, uh, fishing top waters in the fall, landed a couple of largemouth bass, but no snakeheads. And uh, plan is uh, if I can get my kids out there to do kind of a, a family trip, take them out to the nation's capital, I might try to sneak away in the spring when the snakehead fishing is even better. Okay, wow. Well, Scott, um, you know, it's your favorite. If you had to pick your favorite, what do you want to fish for? I I, I will. I won't let myself be tied down to that. I'm, I like okay. a little bit of everything, but I'll say you know to, to not completely avoid the question. I I spend my summers on the on the Minnesota. Uh, you know, you heard me say that earlier. Mm-hmm. Absolutely love it. I mean, I'm a I'm a nice fishing diehard. Uh, but by the end of February or even into March, if it's really cold and snowy and I'm getting sick of it, that's what I'm dreaming of doing is sitting in the back of, of the boat, anchors down, uh, stars out on the beautiful Minnesota River, you know, T-shirt and shorts with my legs kick, kicked up, sipping a beer and waiting for that thump of a flathead to take, to take my bullhead. So that's what I'll do in the summer. That'll be my, my go-to in the summer. And then in the winter, it's, chasing whatever is willing to bite. For those of us who are used to fishing on lakes, what's the biggest difference about fishing on a river? I think it's just being being careful. Um, you know, there if you're coming to these major rivers either around Minneapolis, St. Paul, you're 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 on federally navigable waters where there's a lot more people. Um, you kind of have to know the rules of the road. You almost have to go back to your boater um boater safety course or, or just any of those materials that are online, knowing, knowing where your channel markers are, knowing, you know, how to, how to go through locks and dams, um, how to, how to navigate and, and, you know, pass other watercraft and just being mindful of some of that. You, you want to really mind that stuff. If you're going out on the Minis- lower Minnesota, the Mississippi or the St. Croix close to the Metro area, um, for, for me, where I'm spending a lot of time on the Minnesota, it's just having good lights because there's so many navigational hazards, snags. Um, if the water's really low, there can be mid-channel sandbars. I always tell folks, start learning a stretch of river and stick to it before you move around too much and always go upstream because if you hit something in the dark, you can at least float back to the access. <laughs> That's a good point. I never thought about that. <laughs> um, we have a lot of AIS issues up here. As uh, what about down there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it's here too. I mean, I, I don't give folks the impression that it's everywhere. I think some Minnesotans can have this fatalist men- mentality, like, "Oh, it's here, it's there, it's going to be everywhere." Some way. Oh, it's really not like that. If you look at the total number of infested water bodies. Um, it's still something like, oh, what is it, two or three percent of all waters in the state. 
I mean, then you get into the semantics of do you cut it up by acreage or do you cut it up by the number of lakes? And yeah, some of the large lakes are infested, but you know, we have a few lakes that have zebra mussels and we're, we're, we're watching it carefully. We're certainly seeing impacts to our, our fish community and the ecology of the lake. We have lakes that have Eurasian water milfoil. Um, we do see some purple loose strife. We, we, we have common carp. We don't have, um, you know, some, we don't have starry stonewort in, in the Hutchinson area yet, but just, uh, just north of us in the Candy Ojai area, there's, there's some up there where they were first discovered. So it's always a concern. It's, it's always a good reminder for folks to clean, drain, dry, follow the rules. And I always equate it to this. You're, you're, you may, it may be frustrating for folks, but prevention still is the best strategy. You want to slow the spread of this organism and buy yourself time. I think if everybody has a fatalist mentality and we just give up and, you know, don't care if it gets spread everywhere. If you had the same fatalist mentality with, with purple loose strife, with sea lamprey, um, you, we wouldn't enjoy the successes that we have today. We bought time in those campaigns and you came up with a multifaceted approach to, uh, you know, dealing with and living with those invaders, specifically sea lamprey. I mean, it, you're, you're using, Lamperside, you're, you're, you're sterilizing fish in streams, you're, you're monitoring streams annually and you're, you're paying for preventative costs, but at the same time, you have a billion dollars, you know, billion dollar lakes, uh, you know, Great Lakes fisheries that are out there. So that's kind of, I, I bring that up as an example just to say that, hey, if you can buy yourself time in prevention on the backside, that gives you time to put into research and develop a development and come up with some answers. So that's the hope, whether it's zebra mussels or um, invasive carp or, or starry stonewort or whatever the test du jour may be. What have you been writing about lately? Well, I uh, was able to come back from, from Michigan about a month ago uh, for the Great Association of Great Lakes Outdoor Writers Conference. Lots of unique material there. We were able to get out on some fishing trips, uh, fishing the Manistee and the Osable River, uh, fishing on Lake Huron and Lake Michigan. Uh, you know, just just to see a lot of familiar faces and friends at that conference from all over the United States. To to uh, now just kind of getting into the swing of things. You know, fall fishing heats up. Um, there's opportunity left and right. I mean, duck season is now open on Saturday. Pheasant season opens, um, small game season is open, so folks are getting after the rough grouse. Uh, yeah, there's, there's lots of trips coming up. Deer season will be here shortly. I'm, I'm writing about whatever, whatever outdoors time I can get, whatever adventures I can get on. Uh, and it's always fun to, to do pieces on different people, like you mentioned, uh, talking about or writing about Jason Rylander. It's always fun to do those biographies. There's a lot of folks that are on my, on my hit list to, to visit with. So, I don't know. I, I'm sure I'm like a lot of other writers. You just keep a keep a little list of of topics that you like to cover, and you start uh, you start knocking those off the list. But at the same time, you're putting new ideas up there. So that's the beauty of somebody thought it was a good idea to give me my own column, and I get to exercise my creativity sometimes for the better and sometimes for the worse. Where can you see we see your stuff if we want to read uh, some of the archives or or some of the articles? Yeah, you bet. Uh, check out. Um, if you, if you search for Mockintune, M-A-C-K-E-N-T-H-U-N, uh, Mankato Free Press, St. Cloud Times, 
uh, just Google searching it. There's some conservation volunteer stories. There's freelance stories out there in Game and Fish magazine. There's content all over the place. So check it out there. Um, I'm on Instagram and Facebook and happy to to interact with folks that uh, love to talk fishing or natural resource management or whatever uh, floats your boat. <laughs> he is Scott Mockentoon. He is the DNR Area Fishery Supervisor out of the Hutchinson office. Also, a uh, well-regarded writer, and uh, and I, you know, I, uh, Jason told me I needed to talk to you, and he was right. I did, and uh, it was just before, right before we uh, interviewed today. Yesterday, I ran into Brady Loudon of uh, Visit Bemidji. He said, "You got to talk to this Scott Mackenthun guy." So. You're getting yeah, Brady made Brady's acquaintance and uh, another uh, another really bright person. He's he's pushing Bemidji, working for the city, and does a great job. I I'm looking forward to working with him in the future, and we're going to try and get out and wet a line as well. All right. Well, you well when when you get up here, say hi. I will definitely do that, Kev. Appreciate it. He's Scott Mockentoon uh, from, again, the Airy Fisheries Supervisor out of the Hutchinson office, writer for the Mankato Free Press, St. Cloud Times, and several other publications, taking some time to talk with us today. Scott, thanks so much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors podcast, sponsored by Visit Bemidji. You can catch the radio show Saturdays on KBUN Sports Radio 104.5 in Bemidji, B93.3 in Brainerd, and Kick FM in Alexandria. And of course, multiple times a week, we'll have great stuff for you right here on the podcast.